here you are. It's the 1920s, New York City. A married couple stands arguing in a messy Central Park West apartment overlooking the lush greens below. The floor of the apartment is littered with scraps of fabric, although it's unclear if this came from the ruined furniture or the torn clothing. Old newspapers, books, journals, and taxidermy supplies overflowed tables and shelves, eventually spilling onto the floor. Everything we want to build with our lives! No caged animal or stuffed museum specimen with its distorted bodies and horrid glass eyes can tell us the fascinating life histories of the wild, free creatures. In another room, cowering in a corner, sits the clear culprit, a hazel-eyed gray monkey, holding onto a stuffed monkey toy. It sits there, terrified, thousands of miles from its home, and is forced to ponder how it got there. Welcome to Here You Are, Episode 4, Little Prisoner. I'm your host, Rose Peck. I don't have to labor the point that animals and their study is a major focus of taxidermy. The jungles of Africa were, at the time, a strange and foreign place to Americans, viewed only through glass museum cases and dry placard descriptions. The Americans of the 20th century came onto those lands, trying their best to understand what they found using the tools that their society had provided for them. While many tried to conserve the natural world by putting it on display, some found a much more sympathetic view, seeing animals as something which must be cared for. Out in those jungles of Africa, we see an American woman hiking through the thick underbrush. Delia Akeley, more commonly known by her nickname, Mickey, was an explorer, conservationalist, and imperialist. She was a deep lover of nature and read passionately about its preservation. Her stories of adventure are numerous and varied, from hunting wild elephants for the Field Museum, to writing books and journals, to learning the language of the baboon. Mickey took a great many trips to Africa, where she grew an appreciation and fascination with the people and animals that lived there. But most of all, she held a great love for monkeys. Our strenuous day began when the big bends of the forest, the colobus monkeys, voiced their greetings to the dawn and ended when the citizens of the treetops sounded their curfew for all their kind to go to bed. She found them wonderful and charming creatures, fascinated by their studiousness and intelligence. The popular conception of monkeys seems to be that all of them are unclean and have offensive habits. This is a false natural history which animals kept in confinement teach. The personal habits of wild monkeys are clean and wholesome, and much of their time is spent grooming one another, picking from the fur each tiny particle of dust. She had her porters capture one and bring it back to camp, hoping to demonstrate that it was clean and well-kept. While she intended to set it free, she quickly bonded with the creature and decided to bring her along for the expedition. The captured monkey, a female vervet, was named J.T. Jr. after John T. McCutcheon, a famous political cartoonist of the era and, at the time, a member of the Akeley's expeditioning party. Mickey was joined on her jungle vacations by her husband Carl Akeley, other explorers and hunters, and a team of over 80 natives working as porters who were tasked with packing and moving the camp, gathering and preparing food, keeping hunting weapons stocked and ready, and guarding the camp at night. But this wasn't the first journey that Mickey took with Carl. Mickey and Carl first met in Milwaukee. They immediately fell in love, bonding over their mutual love of taxidermy. At the time, Carl was working for the Field Museum of Natural History as taxidermist-in-chief. Neither of them were well known in the field of taxidermy until the release of the Four Seasons of Virginia Deer Dioramas, which they worked on together. Having made a name for themselves, the field commissioned Carl to do an elephant display in 1906. 
Mickey and Carl journeyed to Africa to collect their specimens. They spent weeks tracking and stalking these creatures, attempting to sneak up on one. They traveled great distances with their porters until, finally, they found not one, but two elephants. They each decided to kill one elephant and fire at the same time, so as not to spook the other away. They cautiously approached from a good vantage, took aim, and fired. When the smoke cleared, the couple investigated their kills. Mickey beamed with pride. This was not only her first elephant kill, but it was also larger than the one her husband had shot. Carl, having shot the smaller elephant, was less pleased. He asked Mickey if she would be willing to trade, but she refused. This was her elephant, and she wasn't just going to give it to her husband to appease his desires. Back in his taxidermy studio, Carl, determined that he would not look inferior, stretched the pelt of his elephant to fit a larger frame than the original animal. In the end, Carl's elephant almost didn't look smaller. These two beasts are still on display in the main hall of the Field Museum. While they are a magnificent sight to behold, a closer inspection of the two elephants reveals that the skin of the smaller elephant, Carl's elephant, is cracking in several places, appearing much more dry and weathered, despite both having been killed and posed at the same time. In the show notes of this episode, you'll find pictures of these two elephants to see for yourself. Shortly after this ordeal, the Akeleys went to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, where they continued to go on expeditions with each other. It was in one of these later expeditions that they captured JT. When JT joined the expedition, a new porter was hired, Ali, a nine-year-old Swahili boy who became JT's personal attendant and valet for the price of one dollar a day. Every morning, Ali appeared at the door of my tent with JT's breakfast. His round, happy, chocolate-brown face shone from a compulsory application of soap. It was a joy to see his lovely white teeth flash when he smiled and his big black eyes melt with childish delight under JT's royal welcome. Ali was always sure of the welcome and JT of the smile, for my two little half-wild companions had ideal morning dispositions. Another such servant of the Akeleys was Bill. After running away from his home among the Kikuyu, a Kenyan ethnic group, in chase of another expeditioner's caravan at the age of nine, Bill became a member of the Akeleys team. Mickey taught him English along with the ways of a tent boy and tracker. In her writings, Mickey would describe Bill as a thoroughbred, and of his relationship with JT, once again chose the phrase half-wild companions. The porters worked day in and day out to support Mickey's jungle escapades, but seldom did she offer her appreciation for any of them except her monkey's personal caretakers. JT's cheerfulness was a wonderful example to the whole camp, and I employed it to advantage when our porters, complaining of some imaginary illness in order to shirk their work, came to me for medicine. The monkey and the porters often suffered with colds, but JT endured her suffering more pluckily than the men. She would play about the tent until too exhausted to play another moment, and then climb up on my lap and, like a tired child, fall asleep while I was reading. She writes of her monkey as a superior specimen, able to shrug off disease before curling into her lap. Of her human companions, she writes less fondly. I had now been in Africa nearly two years hunting elephants without rest or respite. The long, anxious strain of nursing Mr. Akeley through various periods of illness, combined with the heavy responsibilities which had fallen upon me during his helplessness, for no other white person was with us, had sapped my strength and nerve force without my being aware of it. What about JT allowed her to garner so much sympathy from her captors? We, in the 21st century, may point to the difference in intellect between the human and the animal, saying that this is the line that divides us, makes us civil. We expect more of the humans in our lives. But suppose that we viewed people on the same level as we viewed the animals around us. 
Would we still pamper our animal companions, bringing them breakfast on a pillow while berating our fellow citizen? Mickey believed deeply in conservation of all creatures, carefully observing as many as she could and writing down what she found. Conservation through preservation. She wrote at length about the native peoples that she encountered, often living among them and taking part in their customs. She wrote about the natives with the same sense of preservationist obligation that she wrote about the animals with. They honestly pity the poor savage creatures who live free, unrestricted lives out in the forest and on the sun-kissed plains as neighbors to the birds and wild animals. They wish to raise their status by education, hygiene, and cotton suits, and by training them to be subservient to the white man's wishes and desires. Once, while traveling down a river, Mickey observed a native woman advertising a shop on the shore. She was sweltering in the African sun, sweat streaking the white makeup covering her face. She wore a pink frock and yellow heels, holding a child's pink parasol, all of which were clearly too small for her. At this sight, Mickey's white male companions rushed over, hooting and hollering, occasionally making vulgar comments in her native tongue. To me, the dark lady of the riverbank was a symbol. She was the living representation of what happens when we try to improve savage life. A rouged American flapper dancing the Charleston is another symbol. She is the result of imitating that life. Either effort is unnatural, pathetic, and impossible for civilized man. While Mickey wrote of how it was terrible to try to improve these people, she did have a soft spot for the women of these tribes. She would observe men beating or abusing their wives, and originally attempted to intervene. I would stand it as long as I could, with covered ears, and then in desperation interfere. Once I went so far as to have an offending husband ducked in the river by my boys. However, even this sentiment was lost from her as time went on. After dunking the husband in the river, the wife came by the next day, demanding cotton. She desired compensation for the harm done to her spouse. Eventually, Delia stopped trying to help altogether. The minds of both men and women in most of these tribes are far too simple to admit any concept of wrong or even ill-treatment. They react almost instantly, like animals, from fury to terror, and then dissolve in peals of happy laughter. They are filled with a simple, free joy that is the hardest emotion for us to understand or feel. Mickey was filled with a complex, almost contradictory view. While she felt great empathy for the women around her, she always viewed them with fascination, as she would view any other animal specimen. They were a primitive, foreign other. Even when traveling there in person, Delia viewed nature through the invisible lens that she was raised with. Ultimately, we all view nature through glass cases, for there is no other way for us to view it. Time wore on, and eventually the Akeley's expedition came to a close. They took their specimens and their footage and headed back to their apartment in New York. While Mickey knew how poorly monkeys fared away from their forest homes without space, sunlight, and stimulation, she couldn't bring herself to part with her precious JT Jr., so the monkey accompanied the Akeleys back to New York City. This went about as poorly as it could have. One afternoon, JT was sitting on the windowsill of their apartment, overlooking the city, when suddenly a stampede of cows and policemen came running through the streets. The cows had escaped from an upturned transportation wagon, and the policemen were firing off their weapons, trying to keep everything under control. After the ordeal, Mickey called a doctor, suggesting that JT had hysteria. Hysteria. 
a diagnosis given by male doctors to women at the time who were experiencing basically any form of mental disorder or problem. An African monkey in a strange and foreign domestic environment given the labels of a 20th century American society. Unable to adjust to city life, JT caused trouble at every turn, destroying the clothes and furnishings of the Akeley's apartment time and time again. Mickey refused to punish JT or her monkey companion Patty for anything, being sympathetic to the city-bound monkey's plights. Carl was not so kind. JT's presence in New York drove a wedge into their marriage, driving Carl to spend more and more time in his work studio and driving Mickey to become a social recluse, obsessively studying her beloved household primates. Caring for the monkey was beginning to wear on Mickey. After a particularly long day, JT wrapped her arms around Mickey's leg, a signal that JT wanted a ride. Mickey, in no mood to play, refused. Go to bed, JT. I can't play with you now. This began the end of JT's story. After being refused her mother's attention, JT bit Mickey in the heel, a bite that nearly severed her tendon. The bite swelled up with infection, an infection that almost killed her. Then, some weeks later, JT did it again. Then, again, nearly puncturing a vein in Mickey's arm. With that, Mickey gave in to Carl's demands and JT was given to the Rock Creek Park Zoo in Washington, D.C. As expected, JT grew sickly, restless, and miserable in the zoo. She shared her cramped cage with another vervet monkey, a brutish, domineering male. He was cruel, often stealing JT's food, taking attention from her, and even attacking her. I will confess, I felt like killing him when he was attacking JT. But, after all, why do we expect the lower animals to be kinder than human beings are to one another? Seldom do we hear of anyone rushing in and killing a brood of a man for beating his wife or helpless children. He is not even ostracized from decent society. And yet, we sometimes condemn captive animals to death for doing what many bad-tempered human beings have done. JT died in captivity shortly after. While Mickey wept over her loss, she remarked, Thank God, the little prisoner is free at last. Here You Are is a podcast created by students at the University of Rochester. This episode was hosted by Rose Peck and produced by Rose Peck and Harrison Kern. Our engineer was Alexis Ava. Michelle Ficaloro was the voice of Delia Akeley. For the full list of music and sound credits, see the show notes. The coordinating producers for this season of Here You Are are Maya Lepard and Liam Gusios. Executive producers are Thomas Fleischman and Stephen Ressner. Here You Are is made possible by the Teaching Innovation Grant at the University of Rochester. And be sure to check out the other episodes of Here You Are Season 2, Nature Reconstructed, at hereyouare.com. Thanks for listening.